Hey there, listeners. Kat here to let you know that right now, Feminist Frequency is in the midst of our spring campaign raising funds to support the Games and Online Harassment Hotline. What have you heard about the hotline? Did you know it's the best tool that we've got for supporting people who play games or work in the games industry and who've experienced abuse, toxicity, or harassment? Through the hotline, we also offer programs like Respect, our accountability support group for people who have caused harm, and the Help Desk, our free consultation service for people in the games industry who want to bring a survivor-centered shift to their organization and create behavior change, repair, and healing. Help us keep offering these essential services for our community and work to transform game culture. Visit the donate page on our website to support the games and online harassment hotline today. And if you follow us on social media at FemFreak, please share about the campaign and about the games and online harassment hotline. You could be amplifying this message right into the feed of somebody who really needs to see it. Thanks. By the time we're in the late 70s, everyone probably felt like, we did it, Joe. We got rid of all the sexual hangups. Yeah. We are as free as it's possible to be. <laughs> and then they were like, what now? We're going to wrap our buns in gold lame and just like shake them around. Like... <laughs> <laughs> Welcome to Feminist Frequency Radio presents Machos Fully Loaded. This is the podcast that asks you to be critical of the media you love. And this has been the season where we've investigated masculinity in movies and television. I'm Kat Spada. I'm AC Lamberty. Kat, I don't know about you, but I personally have had the time of my life. Ugh. I don't even think I've ever felt this way before. <laughs> <laughs> I mean... That is the best thing I could ever have heard. And there's only one voice you can hear it in. Oh, too. exactly. Well, everybody, welcome to the end. Uh, a final strap in and strap on. Uh, and today we're getting into Machos Who Dance. Let's uh, go. Machos. 100% pure adrenaline. Weapons. Your move, creep. Dominance. Ain't gonna hurt. Machos. The only place you're gonna go is the hospital. I will be right back. You're excited. This is really where it all began because <laughs> we love Patrick Swayze. Mm -hmm. We dream about Patrick Swayze. I think about Patrick Swayze when my eyes are closed, when my eyes are open. Yeah. Um, everything I've watched like for this podcast has been like, oh, but what what if Patrick Swayze were in this? <laughs> or like, how different would it be? Definitely. So just think, thinking about like, we have all these great portrayals of masculinity and then what how like what uh funhouse mirror does it go mm. through when they are also dancing how do we problematize masculinity through <laughs> dance <laughs> um i was a dancer growing up Love so that. i uh always did ballet and mm -hmm. every other type of dance also um and I think that that made me also open to a lot of dance movies. Yeah. Um, so watching some of them, I mean, most of them are just bad because the acting is, they're, they're not actors, they're dancers, <laughs> right. you know? Um, but I think today we get to talk about some like great examples of like either big Hollywood stars who were mm -hmm. excellent at dancing or big Hollywood stars who decided to dance. Yeah, say that. <laughs> It's interesting that you are, I, I think we approached like a dance film a little differently, but yeah. you definitely make me think of dance films in like 
a kind of center stage or like fame uh, or like, I don't know, kind of recreational dance way. Yeah. Whereas like my take this episode, I'm doing kind of just straight up musicals, but I think from a time period where dance was more of a like, I don't know, or like mainstream art form. That makes sense. Yeah. Yeah. Like that, the niche of like certain, you know, I was really getting into like, why would somebody be famous outside of the dance world if what they were was a dancer? Um, And, you know, we can all talk about like the Natu Natu scene from Mm. RRR is like one of the dance moments of pop culture of the last few years. Mm -hmm. And it's about dance. Yeah. It's in in an action movie. Right. You know, it's like, I wouldn't necessarily consider that like a, like a Telugu musical mm-hmm. it's just that there is this one incredible dance scene yeah i'm so excited because these studio musicals had people that like it wasn't a question about like like the dancing was just part of the dna of it right for sure yeah and it's like i, I feel like obviously now in our theatrical landscape it's like one big musical a year and it's like this year it's gonna be um the color purple and wicked mm-hmm. right I guess that's two, but like, it feels like it's a big event now when it's like back in the studio days, they pumped this shit out and that was, that was culture. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, so interesting dance movie evolutions here. Take me there. Yeah. Okay. So I, as we've been talking about, I want to talk about some old school dancing machos this week. I am a closeted theater kid. Ultimately at the end of the day. I love studio musicals of the 40s and 50s. And in terms of like celebrity lore, listen, my household has a lot of stupid lore. Um, mm-hmm. But I do, my roommates and I do firmly believe that like Gene Kelly, his spirit haunts our home. Um, we've That's... communicated with him during films. Yeah. Spirit is present. So I'm like, shout out to Gene. I'm, I'm keeping the, the scales balanced today. Gene Kelly, uh, that's maybe problematic to have his spirit in your home, but uh, <laughs> you know those those thick thighs. I <laughs> I mean, hello. Even <laughs> spectrally, I would like to see it. Listen, we didn't choose to have him haunt us. He's just <laughs> here, okay. Um, but in the co- like to contextualize the stuff I want to talk about today, Ebony Adams, yeah, uh, sometime feminist frequency host uh dear friend of the pod she sent us a text that i was like this is really interesting and i wanted to talk about it in the context of kind of studio musicals in the 40s and 50s so she said to us it's unfortunate that white dudes for the most part don't get to be dancers and still be considered macho or manly unless they're performing hyper masculinity via blue collar cosplay as strippers etc this is not a hard and fast rule of course but i think you're more likely to find black and latinx dudes able to perform certain types of dance without having their masculinity questioned. Very interesting. Totally. Um, Which I thought was fascinating. And I can totally see that with, especially contemporary films, like where we think of like your step ups or your magic mics Mm -hmm. or whatever. Um, But I wanted to consider that uh, with older films as well. Um, Yeah. Any thoughts on Ebony's kind of pitch there? I mean, just to think of like, step up i mean in a lot of ways like channing tatum is this outlier because he's white also like we often are presented with like street dance as being Mm -hmm. like yeah there's latin dance and then there's hip-hop and all of the iterations of those and then if you're like a white man who's a dancer Mm -hmm. you're classically trained right in some way 
Right. Um, and it's definitely like, it, it's definitely something where like we, I think that conversation started with West Side Story uh-huh. and the dance, you know, we had the Jets dancing, but what they were dancing wasn't like a particular style. Whereas yeah. when the Sharks are dancing, like it's very much a part of their culture. Right. Um, and that. I'd love like an actual dance historian to like break down the choreography totally. of, of West Side Story for me and tell me like, yeah, this is where these moves come from. And this is where these moves come from. But yeah, yeah. that's super interesting too. thinking about like classical training as kind of a precondition for masculinity and dance uh-huh. or whatever. And I think that we see that change a bit through history. Like, I don't know, like starting with Fred Astaire, kind of Busby Berkeley era, I'm thinking of dance numbers with extremely wealthy white guys who yes. look incredibly like rich and a little prindy and like like yeah. kind of untouchable in that way. Um but I feel like as we hit kind of Gene Kelly stardom like mid to late fifties, then you start and that's when West Side Story came out as well, then you start getting kind of like a different take on masculinity. I feel like totally. that was the rise of like kind of new hollywood stars like brando is going to start acting shortly too like that new form of masculinity yeah. where it's like you have to be you know macho like literally machismo you know what i mean yeah i don't want to step on your are you no, going to talk about guys and dolls no i've never seen guys and dolls so please tell me oh boy oh boy <laughs> no it's great because like there there are two versions of of macho in this movie sinatra mm. and brando oh wow and it's kind of like Brando's hat is like down the front of his head and Sinatra's <laughs> hat is like perched on the back of his head and that's all you need to know. The kinda. two genders. <laughs> yeah. And they're like gambling and they're lying and they're kind of catting around and they're mm. also like singing and dancing and you can tell that like Brando's not a great singer or dancer but he's just got it. Like yeah. he's got charisma. So you're just like yeah, go for it. Like totally. the singing and dancing is coming from other places in those scenes. Right. Where Sinatra is also like, he's a different type of performer than yeah. a Gene Kelly or a Fred Astaire. Like he's he's met, he's performing like he's a soloist on stage. Yeah. Um, and I really recommend Guys and Dolls. It's a Let's check that out. It's produced to the hilt, oh, too. Like every scene, that's like the best. not a, not a square inch of, of film wasted. Incredible. I have to check. I will definitely have to watch it. I didn't know Brando was even in that. That's crazy. Yeah. But I think Ebony's take about white dudes kind of having to prove masculinity in different ways when there's dancing involved is interesting in the case of Gene Kelly. Um, I want to look at two films in particular, but just some background about him, uh, the man who haunts my home. Um So I want to start with this quote from Louis B. Mayer that I think about literally all the time. I think it's so funny and also hot. Um, So (laughs) when Gene Kelly did his first screen test for MGM, Louis B. Mayer looked at the footage and he said, he's too short, he's too sexy, he's not sympathetic, and he's not for us. And I was like, damn, that's incredible. And like, true, I don't know. He's so, he's a different kind of of macho um, that I think came into the studio system that compared to what people were used to um yeah because he has the like dashing smile of your errol flynn but uh then he is like athletic yeah he has like a a, he doesn't have a 
Laurence Olivier, you know, physical presence. Elegance, per se. I mean, I think yeah, in some yeah. ways, yeah, but he is like, he's very all-American kind of in that yeah. way. Um, so just some background on him. Gene Kelly is an actor, singer, dancer, choreographer, director. Um, I think Singing in the Rain is his best known thing. Um, he was the choreographer and co-director of that. with Stanley Donen, who he worked with a lot um, and also starred in it. Um, had a super all-American upbringing. Like he literally went to college and was in a frat and was studying econ <laughs> um, before his family randomly opened a dance studio and then he became a dance teacher and choreographer mm. um which that kind of feels the classical training feels kind of tied to race and masculinity and validity in a way that makes me think of bob fossey too like yeah. someone who starts in a blue collar background and becomes a dancer or choreographer as a trade um it feels more of like a respected mode of masculinity for male dancers at this time like there's a craftsmanship to it you know what i mean and then it's an entry point into the upper class because you're welcomed in as a performer yeah you're afforded mobility in that way Mm -hmm. um but so once he became a choreographer and dancer he worked on projects and then mgm did pick him up on a contract um quote after much internal resistance which is very funny (laughs) to me um, but most of his early films were kind of dance showcase films, but he largely played working class and blue collar characters. So Pilot 5 and Anchors Away and On the Town. I love On the Town. I don't know if you've seen it. It's I haven't seen so it. so goofy. It's just another one of those like servicemen coming home, wanting to find yeah. a woman on their break or whatever. Well, okay, maybe I have seen I've seen Anchors Away, and so I'm probably like, I could be conflating them. Incredibly one of them similar. Has- one, one of them has Tom or Jerry in it. <laughs> correct. Correct. Couldn't tell you which off the dome, but right. Yeah. Um, but like he plays servicemen in those three. He plays in American in Paris. He plays a veteran, which I think is another kind of way into like a respected masculinity, mm-hmm. quote unquote. Um, he has these like kind of swashbuckling hero roles in Brigadoon and the Three Musketeers. I think one of those is that kind of clip that was going around twitter a couple of years ago where he like swallows the cigarette before making out with this woman do you remember um, that i do and that is <laughs> that's the three musketeers i think it must gosh, be it's so that's so like kinky <laughs> i know i was like this is hot as shit well it was around the time when it was announced that chris evans was like working on a, G- yeah. a biopic and people were like, he does not have this fucking level of swag. It's insane. Totally. And then like showed that clip and it's it's true. Do you know the the story about Brigadoon and Seven Brides for Seven Brothers? No. I haven't have seen s- Brigadoon, but I have seen Seven Brides for Seven Brothers. Seven Brides for Seven Brothers is so wacky. wacky. It's so incredible. Um it so I guess the studio was like, we have two like big cast musicals coming out, and Brigadoon is like a huge broadway sensation like uh-huh. this is going to be the classy movie it's all in black and white uh-huh. they put a lot more budget into it and they put like five cents into seven brides for seven brothers <laughs> but it's in like technicolor and yeah. it's so much more fun it is it is a blast it's so i mean it really is random you know like it is <laughs> so random and it was way more successful but also it has russ tamblin in it no of way. West Side Story and Twin Peaks, like still working, oh, wow. Russ Tamblin, and of course Julie Newmar. Oh my God! As Dorcas, one of the <laughs> seven brides. <laughs> 
<laughs> Which bride do you most identify as? <laughs> oh, definitely Dorcas. No, um, <laughs> with the first bride, unfortunately. Mm, I feel that. <laughs> the one who has every everything go wrong. <laughs> Damn. But yeah, the, I, I love that he like, just, you know, I don't know. There's like this whole article I read where there was kind of the central thesis that Gene Kelly really wanted to be more prestige than kind of like a studio dancing and singing guy. Yeah. And that Brigadier flop feels very emblematic of that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. Like, I want to do this serious, yeah. this serious song and dance man. Yeah. Um, I do want to focus on summer stock and singing mm-hmm. in the rain as kind of like class and race compare contrast kind of thing. So mm-hmm. these are two of my favorite Gene Kelly roles. I think they have two of his best dance numbers so summer stock has this incredible solo like newspaper dance um mm. that i'm gonna link in show notes for sure because it is i just i love watching it it's so delightful and singing in the rain has the singing in the rain uh moment um but i think the roles that he play and plays in both in general really are pretty demonstrative of like the difference in like perception perceptions of masculinity mm-hmm. um with dance and class so summer stock he plays this blue labor or blue collar laborer, like turned artist. He's really hot and buff. Uh, he go. He's part of this like traveling theater troupe that goes to a farm, and they're going to put up a show at the farm over the summer. He falls in love with Judy Garland. Mm. Uh, it's very cute, but basically, you see him the whole time, like either dancing or doing manual labor, and kind of being both macho and uh, sexy, artistic uh, yeah. in that way. Um, but I feel like the dancing serves to actually affirm that masculinity and that kind of uh, edgy, like gritty blue collar class yeah. difference. Um, but like he he is still throughout the whole thing, despite the fact that he is dancing just constantly and being annoying with it. Like he he has this like hot love story. He's very capable. He's like a leader. He's super mask. Um, yeah. Despite being this like dancing lad, you know, I like that that notion of like the going back and forth between labor and Mm. dancing and Mm -hmm. how different that is from like the actual trajectory of like, if you are a choreographer, a dancer, like, which was a lot of the movies I'm talking about, which are like people, characters whose dance for whom dances their career. Yeah. Um, And you have that in seven brides for seven brothers where they're like, you know, chopping wood (laughs) and then dancing. Yeah. Um, But then at this then it also is like, when are they dancing versus like, when are they dancing with women? Mm, that's I also very think tr- is yes. part of it. That's super interesting. And it's very different in, in Summerstock too. Like the, the dancing with Judy Garland, like that relationship is so, even the, the, the tone of the dance is so different and the way that it affirms masculinity in a more like relational romantic way is really interesting. Yeah. Um, but yeah, labor is always kind of the underpinning of like, don't worry, he's he's not like a, a sissy or like right. a, a feminine or whatever. Um, Singing in the Rain is interesting to me, though. I know it's like thought of as a dance film. I think it's a musical, etc. But Gene Kelly plays a far different role. Like he plays mm-hmm. a famous person. He is definitely upper class. He is, you know, wealthy, makes a lot of money. Um, but he really doesn't dance a ton in the way that he had like had in his early career films. Um, yeah. Obviously, there are iconic numbers, and we see Donald O'Connor dance a lot, too. Um, but I think that him playing this wealthy character who is a little more acty than dancey in this film allows him to be, like, his masculinity to come into question or be, like, the butt of the joke at times. Mm-hmm. Um, 
in a, in a far different way than summer stock, um, which I think is really interesting. I don't know. I, I find him more simpering and like less macho in singing in the rain for sure. Yeah. There's only like, there's maybe one throwaway that like he used to be a stunt man. Yeah. And other than that, it's, it's about like singing. I mean, it's so much about. And it's about rain. <laughs> and it's about rain. But it's like the fact that the singing in the rain dance number is not even like my favorite dance number yeah. in the movie. Totally. And it's one of the great dance numbers on film. Exactly. Um, but it also, I mean, for this episode, it brings us got a day. Oh. <laughs> Which I've just been like, I've been thinking that phrase all day <laughs> it's i mean you have to <laughs> have you seen the the usher recreation of the singing in the rain of course, number? yes of course <laughs> <laughs> I, I forget who i'm speaking with sorry <laughs> oh it's so i mean it's great he's it's amazing great. he's one of our best um, how about tom holland lip sync battle on transition into umbrella it's the most 2014 <laughs> thing I've, I've ever experienced <laughs> that's also i'm glad you bring up donald o'connor because like he's i was thinking about this today like dance where dance and like gymnastics and acrobatics kind yeah. of meet and how like what one's a sport and one's not yeah kind of um but he's so physically impressive in that movie and when he's uh -huh. dancing it's I laugh during gotta laugh every time and I've seen yeah. that movie so many times um but in this movie I feel like Gene Kelly's dancing is so much except when he's with the light post like yes he's there so that Sid Charisse can have a moment exactly yes. like he's the the typical like in a classical ballet like the man who's standing there so that the woman can do like right. 14 pirouettes and I even feel that way with Donald O'Connor like gotta laugh or uh uh, make him laugh like that yeah. he, he's the star to me i know gene kelly is participating but he's not like the point yeah i think moses supposes is another like he that's kind of another showcase for gene kelly doing yeah. his like standard mask tap dancing right <laughs> um, right but yeah there's just such a different kind of timbre to it all the great part about debbie reynolds not being a dancer yeah she's like 19 or something she's so it's young crazy in that. yeah and they're once you realize she's not a dancer, it's so obvious that like she's literally just standing there bopping <laughs> while like the two of them are just dancing in circles around her. Like touching feet, stepping apart. <laughs> yeah. <on her> side. <laughs> oh man. Uh, yeah. Um, but in terms of class, it's interesting singing in the rain too. Like I think singing in the rain is commenting on these roles, like the Fred Astaire what like wealthy elegant dancing man um mm -hmm. that being an aspirational form of masculinity at the time period that it's satirizing or like set in or whatever yeah uh, but then kelly's roles that are not singing in the rain not period piece like thinking of singing in the rain as a period piece is crazy but it technically is um, yeah when we did um feminist frequency did a hollywood through the decades mm -hmm. uh season and we when we were talking about the 50s i had the thought of like Oh yeah, like what if what's the period piece today that would be set yeah. in the nineties? And that would be like singing in the rain. Yes. Being set like in fifty two or fifty seven or whatever. Yeah. And yeah, being set in the twenties. Um but yeah, I think besides singing in the rain, like we start to see that shift towards dancer white dudes who are also like super macho and if you think they're gay then fuck you <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
But I'm also curious. I'm I'm interested in the part of Ebony's message to us where she said that you're maybe more likely to find black and Latinx dudes able to perform certain types of dance without having their masculinity questioned. Um, and I think we were talking beforehand about John Leguizamo and like mm. West Side Story and just kind of like Latin dance and how we see that in contemporary cinema. And it's like, that's a cultural thing. It totally makes sense like that people are doing this, but like, do white people have that kind of like thing? And I yeah. think with this era of like studio filmmaking, it's really interesting to consider like black dancers at that time. I don't know if you're familiar with the Nicholas brothers who are like vaudevillians basically. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. So they were an entertainment act composed of brothers Fayard and Harold Nicholas. So they're two black men who came up in like the African-American vaudeville scene in like the twenties and thirties um, self-taught tap dancers and acrobats. And then Samuel Goldwyn uh, scouted them at the cotton club. So they were put in a few movies um, and then by the 40s, they were in Hollywood, and then they divided their time between movies, clubs, concerts, tours, uh, Broadway, et cetera, et cetera. So they were this dancing duo that appeared in several like big studio films. I think their most well-known is Stormy Weather, which is like mm-hmm. a fully Black cast of stars. So we have Lena Horne, um, and then Bill Robinson, who's another kind of dancer-actor hybrid. Um, and it basically serves as a showcase for a bunch of talent, like Black talent um, in the Hollywood like system at that time so you obviously have the nicholas brothers you have fats waller doing like kind of a band lead uh moment it's kind of like a variety show of a movie honestly um but they appear for this insane like you said earlier actually like acrobatic like jumping leaping uh dance number called jump and jive literally um but they're in this kind of upscale wealthy club and it was really interesting seeing this in relation to like the singing in the rain gene kelly slash fred astaire type of wealthy white man dancing like it felt kind of like politics of assimilation but at the same time being like oh this is a a type of masculinity that i do not question you know what i mean like right we don't have that working class comparison like we do with gene kelly Um, yeah yeah i think there's a lot of translation from like from stage to screen that was Mm -hmm. happening at this time and i don't know enough factually about this but like in the moments where we're seeing performers that are supposed to be vaudeville acts or mm-hmm. that are supposed to be like representative of actual entertainment mm-hmm. um instead of just like brigadoon this is what's happening you yeah. know <laughs> where in real life i think there might have been more like black performers but then yeah. when that like thing turns into being on a move in the movie it's either whitewashed or it's like I just feel like it's sort of painted with a really broad brush. Mm. Um, When we did that Hollywood through the decades, we talked about a 1932 movie called Blonde Venus with Mm. Marlena Dietrich. Yeah, that was pre-Haze Code. Pre-Code. And it had like a lot of, there's one number that we talked about as being like, it's very difficult to watch today because it's so race, like so uh, overtly racist. Yeah. But you have all of these black women dancers whose Mm -hmm. bodies are on display. And then you have Marlena Dietrich. And, like, Mm -hmm. she's the star. And how, like, a few years later, they wouldn't have shown these, like, black women alongside a white woman on stage in that way. Yeah. And in those Busby Berkeley movies, too. Like, Mm -hmm. one of them, again, I hesitate to say on on air, like, oh, this is a movie I enjoy. Mm -hmm. Because there's so many racial stereotypes in it. Right. But it has all of those, like, unbelievable spectacles of choreography that, like, 
yeah. you have to see to believe. And it's called Footlight Parade. Mm-hmm. And there's like all these scenes where they're like see black people on the street in New York and they're like, we're going to turn that into a stage number. Mm -hmm. And then by the time it's turned into a stage number, it's all like white girls. Yeah. And so it's like, it's happening, but they're never talking about what's happening. So yeah, that's interesting too. Like I think alongside how we are viewing it from stage to screen, we are also coming at it from such a different perspective of like representation politics too. Like at the time I feel like stormy weather is a really interesting like affirmation of masculinity in a way that is more like proving that there is like, like the politics of assimilation, right? Like taking place in this club or venue that is similar to like in a stare film or like early or like singing in the rain, you know, that, that kind of elegant refined Mm -hmm. uh, club setting. Perhaps this was a way to like, quote unquote, convince white audiences that like, we are talented. We are like this expression of masculinity is valid. Like, I don't know the assimilation, like we're just like you, that kind of representation thinking that I think is still around today. Well, and not to like break racism down into its most like white supremacy down into its Uh most like obvious uh, molecules, but it also just really comes to like humanity and what's considered refined and all American and what's considered being a person versus like a lot of these guys that we're talking about did minstrel acts as well. And when they were doing that, they were portraying characters, not as human. Right. Um, Which you see in that Marlena Dietrich scene and like eventually what became like, Oh, we can do this because it's okay because it's a white man in blackface. And then how most of these people stopped doing it. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. It's, it's interesting. Like, back then it being kind of an affirmation of these people and now it being kind of like a oh man it just it sucks that there has to be that kind of proof quote unquote or it's just like interesting how we can read masculinity and race now but with that there was a really interesting quote from an la times article about the nicholas brothers um that said because of racial racial prejudice they appeared as guest artists isolated from the plot in many of their films this was a strategy that allowed their scenes to be easily deleted for screening in Jim Crow era South. So it's like, while we have men of color who are able to like access and affirm this masculinity in a, a different way than like white dancers at the time, or like, as we see it progress with like Gene Kelly's roles and then get into like fifties and sixties, it's still rooted in like a white surveillance essentially. Yeah. That's determining a mode of acceptable masculinity. Yeah. Which is really interesting to me. I don't know. I mean, I think that the movie is amazing and like that their dance numbers are incredible. Um, but it's interesting to consider like Ebony's thoughts about race and dance um, yeah. in this era. I think it holds true currently too, for sure. But yeah, I wanted to take it back a bit. I, I know we'll we'll talk a little bit more about this later, but like in Dirty Dancing uh-huh. or in some of those step up, like the like more modern era dance movies. I think a lot when it comes to Latin dance yeah. is focused on is like, well, if it's taught the way that Arthur Miller taught it, mm. Arthur Miller, I'm, I said the wrong Miller. There was a <laughs> dance teacher. Anyway, if it's taught in this way that like you can do at the country club, then that's great. Yeah. But if it's like done in the sort of like nightclub style of dance that people actually do, then it's like too ethnic. It's too <laughs> racialized and yeah. more sexual and unacceptable and that definitely only will continue to show up more and more is like hip-hop and like other 
forms of dance become like a, I don't know, assimilated, yeah, yoinked into like the white cultural uh, yeah. context. But wait, I feel like this is a perfect segue to get into some of your picks. I mean, the first one I'm seeing here is like that is definitely a lens you could use for that film. Yeah. And I guess disco in general, but whatever, I'll let you get there. <laughs> I mean, look, I didn't do a lot of research on disco. I didn't watch Baz Luhrmann's The Get Down because that's oh where you God. should start when you research <laughs> disco, right? Um, no, but I watched Saturday Night Fever. Yeah, that's um, a hard watch for me. What did What did you think? I've look. I, I wish I could say this is the first time I've seen this movie. I've mm. actually seen it before and Staying Alive. It's it's maligned yeah. sequel. Um, <laughs> I did not know there was a sequel. Oh, my God. Okay, so Saturday Night Fever. Let's just talk about this couplet of movies together as Please. one. So I was focusing on these, like, dance movies in the 70s and 80s that are about dancers. Mm-hmm. They're about uh, people who are either pursuing dance as a career or they are dancers who um, that's, like, crucial to the story, but mm-hmm. the story's about something else. So Saturday Night Fever and Staying Alive are these two movies from 1977 and 1983 starring John Travolta as Tony Manero, a disco king. And just a horrible young man. (laughs) He's so upsetting. He's so abhorrent. Just so deeply unlikable. Like, it's crazy. Saturday Night Fever, he definitely at least attempts rape. Um, He watches his friends commit rape and... He participates in several acts of violence. A lot of slurry usage, if memory serves. A lot of slurry usage, but also he's just an asshole. Like, even if he wasn't doing all of that stuff, he is so mean. Yes. And this movie was, like, his first big role after Welcome Back, Cotter. Mm. Uh, It's based on a New York Magazine article called Tribal Rights of the New Saturday Night, which was... I think at the time scene is like, wow, a real look into the underbelly of the like <laughs> New York disco scene. Sure. But then later the writer was like, yeah, I made most of that up. Like oh it's mostly God. fictional. I did not know that. That's <laughs> kind of incredible. This movie was seen though as like one of these like gritty 70s New York movies. Mm-hmm. So it's about a guy who loves to disco. Um, but he's also like getting into brawls. He's getting into like racial tensions. He's asserting his masculinity in these ways i guess but it's like you're you know watching it i kept thinking okay what's the point like this is a Uh story of a young man i think he's supposed to be like 19 Uh um who he makes barely any money he lives with his parents who are always giving him an earful about like not being good enough and then he on saturday night gets to like be the star because Uh he's the best dancer at the club and there's all these like romantic entanglements that are happening that he's either like, leave me the F alone. <laughs> you are a bad dancer. Like, I will not talk to a woman who is a bad dancer. Or it's like he's sexually drawn to someone only because they're a good dancer. And it's hard mm-hmm. to tell like if he's a sexual character. Oh. Which I only bring up because like that's so present in the movie. Like these guys are all about like hey, I got to use the car to go hook up with this girl. Like, you know, I got someone pregnant. What am I going to do? Like, it's all about how they're chasing tail, basically. Yeah. And Tony only wants to chase, like, the spotlight. Yeah. Interesting. 
Yeah, and like I think this is trying to tell like a blue collar story, and that's what happened. Is they were yeah. like great best actor nominee John Travolta, wild at a very young age. Then all that jazz comes out. Ugh, you know this is li- like quite literally my favorite movie of all time. It's I'm so excited. I'm I'm so excited for you to read. I get so emotional about it. <laughs> it's like. Bob Fosse is such a such a character. Like I love that. I love that at this point in our lives we have Lin Manuel Miranda as Roy Scheider, as <laughs> Joe Gor- Gideon, as Bob Fosse in Fosse slash Verdon. Oh <laughs> like- <laughs> my god! You're right. Oh, who could forget Fosse Verdon? That's an amazing series. It's really good. I'm I'm actually not focusing on it too long because it's been so long since I've watched oh. it. But I just wanted to point out like what happened between 1977 and 1983 when they made uh-huh. a sequel to Saturday Night Fever <laughs> is uh, the the stage musical Grease comes to the big screen starring John Travolta. Cool. It's a huge, huge success. Um, all that jazz comes out and it's another like it can be seen as another like 70s gritty movie about uh-huh. an alcoholic drug user, about death and art. Um, all that jazz got pretty bad reviews <laughs> because mm. people were like, wow, Bob Fosse really has a lot to say about Bob Fosse. Um, <laughs> I think that's another, like, I, now that we're so removed from it, it's like, well, he's a fucking genius, so I love yeah. hearing what he has to say, but I can imagine at the time it was maybe a little uh, insufferable. Well, what I kind of identified in these in this era is, like, these men who are dancers who where does their masculinity show up is that they're dicks Mm. is that they'll fight is that they'll drink is that they are womanizing cheaters like and that their dance is seen as like their art their value it's not just something they do it's something that they're respected for Mm. and so there are these characters where it's like as if you know we're talking about and we are like, but we're talking about great artists. And yeah. so especially with all that jazz and Bob Fosse is like talking about the time that he was editing a film he directed at the same time as staging Broadway musical Chicago and every, every thing was coming at him and nobody was perfect enough. And yeah. the movie itself has like Bob Fosse's girlfriends and XY <laughs> wife. <laughs> and like he has people, messy, messy people in the movie playing characters that are being mistreated by Joe Gideon that Bob Fosse actually mistreated that mm-hmm. actress. Yeah. Like it's so I think there's a part of it that like there's this romanticization of like the troubled artist. Oh, for sure. It's and an identity thing, right? Totally. Like, even with Saturday Night Fever, like disco as an identity, like it's similar. I don't know. Yeah. Um to to Joe Gideon's kind of identity as a dancer choreographer whatever yeah uh but tell me give me your uh i'd love your thoughts on yeah. all that jazz because like i said i haven't watched it in a long time but it's obviously there's so many like him in the mirror mm. going like it's showtime <laughs> it's oh. so incredible but one of your faves it is my favorite movie of all time this is going to sound so pretentious i saw it at can when i was mm-hmm. interning uh, and they did like a retrospective screening of it. And I was like, this sounds kind of good. And 
I've heard, I love Chicago. I've heard of Fosse, whatever. And I just became obsessed. Like Fosse is one of my favorite directors of all time, period. Yeah. But um, in terms of like dance, like the actual craft, there are just some, some of the best dance scenes of all time. Like the erotic airways number <laughs> is top five scenes for me ever. I think we should link that too. Like it's yeah. so magical to watch. It is so, and then like, like I said, like it's probably easier swallowed now that we are removed from Bob Fosse as a person and artist in the public eye, but seeing something so scathingly autobiographical, like this guy like hates himself. Like you can kind of tell and it's <laughs> yeah. incredible. Like, and it's amazing. It really does feel like a reckoning and like autobiographical film that I haven't seen done as well. Like it's, it's perfect to me. I love it. And shout out Ben Vereen and then mm. another amazing dancer who does this incredible MC role um, during a fantasy dance sequence. It's, he's just fabulous in it. So good. I'm I'm so curious, like watching these and thinking about what was going on culturally in the 70s. Uh, I was watching a, a like PBS like great performances <laughs> clip. Of, oh, I love that. Um, of a chorus line, mm. and I just Michael thought, Douglas like, is the lead in that, right? <laughs> Yeah. That's so wild. <laughs> yes. Yes. And I, I, but they were doing like this, the Broadway cast on PBS, oh, sure. like doing okay. a performance. But I just had this thought that, like, okay, by the time we're in the late 70s, everyone probably felt like, wow, we really did it. We, we did it, Joe. We got rid of all the sexual hangups. Yeah. All, we are as free as it's possible to be. I think that's how <laughs> they must have felt. And then they were like, what now? We're going to wrap our buns in gold lame and just like shake them around. Like, <laughs> you know, like, because there's something to like, so I, I have a, I don't have a lot of familiarity with jazz dance, like mm. jazz and modern, like it was this hugely transformative time in the dance world. Yeah. Um, starting in like decades earlier, but like by the time of the seventies that it was popular mm -hmm. dance culture to have like a complete perversion of like classical ballet um yeah. being you know and alongside disco like taking dance and music out of black communities and like yeah. making them acceptable for white communities and right. it's just interesting because like it's hard for me to watch and see this as like oh yeah this is the top level of like dance artistry because mm. it seems so dated yeah. Um, yeah. In that way that it's like, it it's so of its time that it's mm -hmm. not timeless, but that that's okay. That doesn't mean it's not like incredible. Yeah. But anyway, we get to, let's get to 1983 because <laughs> how the fuck. This was post Greece. Yes. That's crazy. And also the director of this is fucking sending me to hell. I, okay. That's insane. <laughs> so I'm watching Saturday Night Fever on Paramount Plus. And again, I've seen this movie and its sequel before in my life. <laughs> They're also like just vehicles for the Bee Gees. Like both of yeah. these movies, they were just like, we want to do a Bee Gees album. Do can you we... want residuals? <laughs> yeah. Can we do a movie about their music? Yeah. So immediately after the success of Saturday Night Fever, they're like, we got to do a sequel. What's Tony Monero up to next? Well, he was a disco king. Like, Who is he terrorizing now? Who, yeah, he's the worst. But like now what happens to him? Little stinker. <laughs> <laughs> he like his like friend like falls off the Brooklyn Bridge or something like after <laughs> trying to rape someone and like get an abortion like it's insane terrible. Insane. <laughs> <laughs> 
So they decide that, and by they, I mean John Travolta and like the guys behind Saturday Night Fever, uh, that Tony Monero would go from being the best disco dancer in his borough to moving to Manhattan and pursuing <laughs> a dream of dancing on Broadway. The Great White Way. This movie is like, how do we do the the like only the dance parts of all that jazz, but worse? <laughs> <laughs> and they've shop it around for a couple of years. Eventually, they just like literally John Travolta sees Rocky three, I think. Okay. And like at this point, Sylvester Stallone has directed a couple of Rocky movies. Okay. And he's like, that's who we need. That's God damn it. That's <laughs> crazy. Only someone with the verve of these Rocky movies the will bulls. really get. <laughs> Tony Monero on Broadway. Like, he'll really make it make sense. And this is like, you watch it. It was, it was successful, but it was also panned. It's like, um, of, of movies that have 20, over 20 reviews on Rotten Tomatoes, there's only 43 that have a 0% rating. The earliest one on the list is Staying Alive. Wow. From 1983. <laughs> Congrats, Sylvester. You did it. <laughs> Here's where also like the machismo of it is like, Whose machismo am I dealing with? Am I dealing with Tony Monero's? Am I dealing with various choreographers, including one played by Kurtwood Smith? Am I dealing with Sylvester <laughs> Stallone and John Travolta's machismo? And the answer is yes to all of these. Period. Like, <laughs> because what would have been a better movie is that Tony Monero thinks he's hot shit, moves to Manhattan, tries to make it as a Broadway chorus dancer flops flops midnight cowboy style totally Ur <laughs> urban cowboy style john travolta's yeah. like next movie um that was what the movie was going to be but travolta was like no tony monero would be a broadway star <laughs> that's like that is really honestly like heartbreaking in a way <laughs> like oh my no it's, john really like really it is like <laughs> the john travolta story if you tell like and then john travolta the He's Church like, of Scientology, like, this is our last episode, I know, but they're going to get our asses, is what I'll say. <laughs> he, Stallone's like, I got you. He helps rewrite the movie so that <laughs> Tony Monero has a happy ending. Um, Good lord. He also, I loved this line on Wikipedia, Travolta, sorry, under Stallone's supervision, Travolta spent five <laughs> months doing rigorous training to develop a dancer's physique for the film, losing 20 pounds in the process. What about just like Creed? What about how was that under Stallone's supervision? Like, did Stallone teach him how to dance? Um, no, oh God, he was just like, okay, here's where I get my human growth hormone. <laughs> Go for it. When King. you watch the trailer for Staying Alive, you're led to believe Sylvester Stallone plays a plays a Joe Gideon style character in this movie. Woof. In reality, he's only on screen when he is bumped into on the street by John Travolta and he turns <laughs> around and faces the camera and you're like, oh my God, it's Sylvester Stallone wearing like a fur coat. <laughs> oh my God. Um, and he's uh, he's pretty much just as shitty in this movie. Like he's completely unlikable, yeah. but he does a uh, just the most insane musical number for a musical called uh, Satan's Alley, I think. <laughs> Mm. but most importantly oh. this movie has the best last line of any movie which is um what's the denouement 
okay, he like got to be the star of a Broadway show. He like breaks the rules every step of the way. <laughs> like literally on stage, the girl he's dancing with who's like, I'm not that into you. He just like kisses her full on the mouth, like on stage during opening night. And she, <laughs> she like scratches his face. And then she apologizes to him. Um, there are several moments where the director's like, you weren't supposed to take a solo. And he's like, I took a solo. <laughs> and then it's like, okay, what's the lesson going to be? Like Tony Monero's the best at dancing. <laughs> and he says to like his girlfriend, who's also there, that's not the one he was uh, making out with. Mm-hmm. He's like, you know what I want to do? Strut. And then he walks out of he walks out of the theater. Yeah, now sissy that walk. John. Oh, he walks out of the theater to stay in alive and Stop. struts. And that is the end of the movie. It's that is kind of amazing. It's like, it's garbage, but like if you just watch the last scene. So I just felt like this was an era. Mm. When you're watching the dancing, especially. It is so, like, all the men and women are doing the, the same moves. It's mm-hmm. very fluid. It's a lot of leaps, and it's a lot of extensions. And they are, these men are, like, slender. You know, they have, like, the dancer's body where everyone's in a unitard and they all look alike. And you're seeing John Travolta in, like, a little, just a little brief in leg warmers and a headband. Mm. Like, there is something about it where it's, like, I'm curious if audiences watched this and thought, like, this is extremely gay or not. Oh, do you know what I mean? Interesting. <laughs> like, because they don't really do anything to, like, they're not ever trying to prove, like, oh, I'm such a man. They just are womanizers and they love mm-hmm. to do this particular style of dance. Um, right. So it's really, it's really something, like, aesthetically, it just has this look of like going a few years later, but like the Mm -hmm. Olivia Newton, John music videos where you're looking at it and you're like, this has a lot of like homosexual aesthetic. I don't know. Yeah. But like, that's not ever touched in the movie. That's interesting. You're not, you have a note that says like big Dirk Diggler energy, which is also very true and similar in that way. I mean, I think, Boogie Nights is actually commenting on that. And you have the moment with uh, Philip yeah. Seymour Hoffman, Scotty, where there's like, maybe there's a little bit of addressing how this could be construed as homoerotic yeah. or, you know, the aesthetics, the relationships, whatever. But maybe it was just cultural. And people watch that movie and are like, yeah, that's just how you are a guy these I days. I mean, in the <laughs> same way that like men were wearing lifts and, and heels at this time and like yeah. maybe florals. I don't know. Like, and that wouldn't have yeah. necessarily been seen as like uh, unmasculine because it was just right. a, a time in culture. But like, yeah, if this, if it was just a few years later, I would think you'd have even like some mm. side character in the same way that they do with Boogie Nights. You'd have some makeup yeah. artist who's like, you know, oh, aren't you, aren't you so hot, Tony? And he'd be like, ah. And then he'd call him a slur. Yeah, and then he'd be like, <laughs> something bad. Right, yeah. but like. It just de- it just doesn't approach it. It's like not, as if this right. is a world without gay people <laughs> because <laughs> the dancing is just about like, oh, I'm going to show this woman that I'm like a real man. Yeah. Sexual virility. Yeah. Straight sexual yes. virility. Damn. And finally, I want to talk about a movie that I think is an 
excellent movie. It's not a dance okay. movie, but it is about and starring dancers. And that's 1985's White Nights, directed by Taylor Hackford. Really? Have you ever seen this? I have not. My only Baryshnikov uh, frame of knowledge is Sex and the totally. City. Totally. I mean, Baryshnikov is fascinating because mm-hmm. he is such a crossover from like being a, he's a celebrity. Like he's not yeah. just a dancer. He's a celebrity. He was in movies, television. Uh the fact that he ended up being a heartthrob decades later on Sex and the City. Um, yeah. I was shocked. Watch, I, I only watched Sex and the City recently yeah. for the first time. I was like, wow, what a choice. Yeah. Like, very interesting. I loved uh, your reminder that Gene Kelly was a short king because uh, <laughs> Misha is like 5'5 five five also. And oh, was it. Uh, that could have made him not a successful dancer because uh, in ballet, you need to be able to partner to tower over a woman on her point shoes. Mm. Um, so he, uh, so this movie, White Knights, is a political thriller. And it stars mm. Mikhail Brushnikov as a Soviet defector and ballet dancer whose plane crashes in Soviet airspace. And wow. there's one of the great, like, tense scenes in a movie when he realizes the plane is going to crash and he is panicking because he knows that he will be captured by the USSR um Whoa. if they crash and he's freaking out and he's been like he's just come from a white tablecloth gala you know he's living large yeah. in london and paris and new york and all these places and now he's like Ugh. while mm-hmm. there he is put under the supervision of gregory hines uh who plays mm-hmm. a defector from the united states and so Gregory Hines is a tap dancer who is performing here in Soviet Union uh, and lives with his wife, played by Isabella Rossellini. And mm-hmm. at first they're like, hey, you're in pr- hey, Mikhail Bereshkov, you're imprisoned back in the Soviet Union. You have to dance. We're going to make you dance for us. <laughs> uh, Gregory Hines is going to make sure you don't uh, screw off. And so yeah. they kind of develop this like uneasy truce uh between the three of them helen mirren who was taylor hackford's wife uh also plays Uh a a russian dancer who's kind of used as a pawn in all of this so it's like a great you know one of those great kind of uh yeah like following the steps of like the ticking clock and is the escape going to happen and what subterfuge do they have to do But it has these incredible dance scenes because you can tell that, like, the characters, but also the performers, Brishnikov and Hines, respect each other so much as, like, being at the top of their games. And I would, you know, I'll point to, you you mentioned, um, you mentioned the Nicholas Brothers. Like, Tap is such an interesting, has such an interesting history. Oh, yeah. And that we would have a character who it would be very easy to say that like ballet is real art it'd be very easy for a movie to say ballet is real art tap is not this movie doesn't ever go there and i appreciate that because it's like you see these two men doing things that are just incredible to see they're like one shot of them just rehearsing Cool. with a boombox and it's like not a big stage performance and it's like you're you're breathless watching them dance 
I have to see this, actually. Yeah, it's really good. Thinking more <laughs> about just the plot, I'm like, this is wild. Like, it sounds very if, uh If it's not streaming anywhere, I'm pretty sure I have it on... I at least have it on DVD, but oh. I think I upgraded it to Blu-ray. Because <laughs> nice. don't worry, this podcast is hosted by physical media freaks. <laughs> Say that. Say that. Yeah. Um, and so I wanted to just talk a little bit... Like, this is a great movie, but I wanted to talk a little bit about these dancers in particular, um, mm-hmm. which is... Uh, Gregory Hines, in the same way as Bershnikov, I think is a great like crossover talent. He had mm-hmm. acting roles that didn't have dance in them. He also re- was a recording artist. Uh, he mm-hmm. was just like a crossover hit in so many ways. Right. And probably like probably the most famous tap dancer. Like if you ask people to name a tap dancer. Um, Mm-hmm. He said that as an actor, he often looked for roles that were written for white actors because they had greater scope and dynamics. For example, his character in Running Scared had sex scenes. And Gregory Hines mm-hmm. was like, usually the black guy has no sexuality at all. Yeah. Um, Barishnikov, like, so Barishnikov uh, is sort of a successor to Rudolf Nureyev uh, in terms mm-hmm. of like, these were uh, Soviet um, defectors who became very beloved in the West. And Nureyev was a dancer and choreographer and a socialite. Like he was at Studio 54 all the time. Uh, but mm. he wasn't necessarily like acting or in movies and doing other stuff. Barishnikov kind of took this like Mickey Mouse path <laughs> uh, to some extent. And... I think made, you know, both of them, but made ballet accessible for a broader audience. Yeah. Because a lot of people are never going to go to the ballet. Um, yeah. But if you go to see White Knights, because these guys are kind of handsome and it's an espionage mm-hmm. movie, and you're going, the first scene of the movie is one of the most breathtaking ballet scenes oh. directed, uh, choreographed by Twyla Tharp. Oh, cool. It's so good. And, you, and you'd and you watch it and you would have no idea. You might think ballet is all not, the nutcracker. And you yeah. wouldn't necessarily expect to see Mikhail Baryshnikov dancing with a, a woman who is the representative of death. And that is yeah. how that movie starts. Um, oh, cool. That sounds right up my so alley, cool. frankly. Um, and then like Baryshnikov, like when I think about the Mickey Mouse style of things. Um, yeah. <laughs> I watched... The entire 51 minutes of Barishnikov on Broadway, <laughs> which was like a 1980, maybe PBS special. Um, mm. I will sh- share with you several pictures of uh, Barishnikov and Liza Minnelli, his co-star. Well, I was going to say this be- feels very like Liza with a Z, the Fosse directed like kind of showcase like one woman show whatever i feel like that was a popular thing totally taping these one person showcases yeah and it was just to like i think to some extent it was like if you have a tv and you're never going to go see see a show on broadway why don't you spend this hour with the people you love from the movies showing you what happens on broadway i kind of wish we had stuff like that yeah like that's lovely i mean you know we're in la like there are times I don't like often watch the Tonys, but there are times where I'm like, oh, cool, a performance from Spring Awakening, which I haven't seen yet. And like, 
now I have a little bit of an understanding of what it is. Like, that's cool. Um, but I, <laughs> Brishnikov on Broadway is just deliciously 1980 because <laughs> it's like, He's in a dance studio and Liza Minnelli literally shows up and is like, I got you a pastrami sandwich. (laughs) (laughs) And he's like, thanks, Liza. And he like, you can tell his English is not great at this point in his career. Oh. And he's like, uh, she goes, what are you thinking about Misha? (laughs) And he goes, Broadway. (laughs) (laughs) And then they um, literally... I don't remember writing this with you. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I haven't gotten paid, certainly, for it, but whatever. They walk through the dance, like, through the mirror in the dance studio into, like, a dreamscape in which Mm. Barishnikov gets to, like, do a number from a bunch of popular Broadway shows. Okay. And there's just a line. (laughs) A Pops concert, basically. It's just that. But it's like yeah. Liza is like literally just like perched on a ladder, you know, like <laughs> in a halter top. Like, oh, you sh- Look at him you go. show him, Misha. Like, <laughs> she's explaining the musical Oklahoma to him. And she's like, it was the first in so many ways. This It was the first time this director worked on Broadway. And it was the first time storytelling was used quite like this. And Bershnikov goes, I'm going to try to do a Russian accent. So apologies to everyone in the world. <laughs> you know what would be a first for me? Well, I've been a prince in Nutcracker, a puppet in Petrushka, a slave in Corsair, but I've never been an American cowboy. <laughs> <laughs> and that day, a dream came true. <laughs> I, I'm just like, so, I mean... Honestly, this is where this is. This is the final diary entry of Macho's Fully Loaded for my like personal <laughs> examination of like being fascinated with men in the way that we okay. are conditioned to be by culture, but also just in the way that we personally desire them okay. and like to look at them and like to see what their bodies yeah. can do is like watching dancers has always been such a huge part of like being a dancer and being a fan of dance and seeing men be very powerful in this way has always appealed to me. Um, Mm -hmm. So that's why like Matthew Bourne's Swan Lake, I think was really groundbreaking because it put a lot of men in a, in a much more like naturalistic or animalistic way than they had been seen on the classical ballet stage. Cool. And so I just want to, they'll be linked in the show notes, but there's just a couple of like dance movies and dance performances that I want to shout out for anyone who either like, maybe you've just missed these movies or you're like, you know, I like dance, but I don't seek out a dance movie. Like, I'm not mad when the scene happens in a movie. Here are some recommendations mm-hmm. for you all. First of all, watch White Knights, Taylor Hackford, 1985. Yeah. Secondly, I haven't seen this full movie, but I've seen clips from it over the years, which is the movie Tap from 1989, directed Mm. by Nick Castle, which is a Gregory Hines showcase. And it was Sammy Davis Jr.'s last role. There is this brilliant scene where Sammy Davis Jr.'s older guy shuffling around sees Gregory Hines rehearsing and he's like, (laughs) 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 and Hines is like, you got something to say, old man. And then he calls in, like, I wish I knew. I'm sure every one of the men in this scene is, like, a star of of days gone by. 
he calls yeah. in like all the old guys from the shop and he's like, let's show <laughs> he wants a challenge. And then these men just blow your mind. They're doing splits and tricks Ooh. and jumps and they're tapping in a way that you're like, oh my God, <laughs> like, these are like That's amazing. 70, 80 year old guys. And Gregory Hines is just watching like, oh, <laughs> really good. <laughs> Um, cool. And then uh, I would say that Rudolf Nureyev is a great, uh, he's just a great like figure of masculinity of this era. He was the first artist who defected from the Soviet Union during the Cold War, which was mm. a huge deal. It was a very dramatic scene wow. that happened in Paris. Um, and he was an interesting character. He was from an ethnic minority group in uh, Russia. He was Muslim. Yeah. He was not from an upbringing that would have like sent him to the Bolshoi to train. Okay. Then he was, like I said, a socialite. He had long-term open relationships with men. Um, and he was one of like the first famous people to die of AIDS. So he's this like, mm -hmm. even in, I think 2017, like somebody uh, wrote a, a ballet telling Nureyev's life story. And it has not wow. been allowed to be shown in a lot of places because of LGBT mm. censorship. And yeah. he was this beautiful, powerful, technically skilled dancer. Uh, there's a documentary about him called Nureyev. And in 2018, Ray Fiennes made a biopic about him called The White Crow. Last ballet movie, and then I have just one little button for, for AC specifically. <laughs> the movie Mao's Last Dancer, which came out in 2009... It's an like okay movie. It's directed by Bruce Beresford, who does a lot of like great sweeping Australian epics. Um, yeah, cool. And it is the similar kind of defector artist story of Lee Kunshin. I'm sure I mispronounced his name. Um, also, just a, the actor who plays him in the movie is beautiful. And if you look up, mm -hmm. uh, Lee is only like 65 now. Like if you look him up, mm -hmm. he's uh, also just a beautiful dancer. Uh, incredible. Yeah musculature and phys physicality and strength but finally i just wanted to bring like one little weird thing in which is baz lerman's first feature yeah. you haven't seen it right i haven't i feel like i i remember trying to watch it in college but never uh got into it i think so it's strictly ballroom from 1992 just another like example of one dance is considered like upper crust and when it's not. And so it's a a little bit of a Romeo and Juliet story or an ugly duckling story. Like uh, Paul Mercurio plays Scott, who's a ballroom dancer. And this like young, um, I think she's Mexican-Australian woman. Uh, she's definitely Latina. She wants to dance with him. But she comes from like a community where dancing happens in the backyard and is like a lot more natural. So how do they kind of find their way to each other when he's trying to do like the paso doble in a very like uh, strict kind of way? Um, it's a weird, I mean, it's, it's Baz, you know? It's Baz. Do you mind if I add some dance movies to your Please. list? And by movies, I mean one and then one yes. scene. <laughs> I'm just thinking of as you give your picks. Um, this was like a movie I saw really super close to the start of the pandemic in 2020 and i wish it had gotten its theatrical due but um and then we danced is a georgian film about it's like a queer story set in traditional georgian dancing um very beautiful has this just gorgeous like 
one take uh dance house party shot that is just so lovely that sticks out in my head but that's a great dance film um and then one of my favorite even just like a scene one of my favorite dance scenes the oscar isaac ex machina dance scene yeah it's iconic it's iconic (laughs) um a fave of mine talk about macho hello so have you seen that the you this isn't for you you won't have seen it Peacemaker <laughs> with John Cena on HBO or whatever. No. Familiar with it. I have not seen Like, it. I'm going to make sure that you watch just the opening credits. Like, the the show's intro is, like, a big dance number with oh, John fun. Cena and all the characters. It's I wild. Um, Ugh. Well, wow. Thanks for... Thanks for talking about tattoos. <laughs> I'm, like, sobbing. It's the wow, crazy. Oh, man. I, you know, let's... Oh, shit. There was like a disco song lyric that just flew through my head. Because let's one dance, one chance for romance. Last dance. <laughs> <How does it go>? <laughs> <laughs> last dance or last, last chance. Whatever. You guys know what we're talking about. It's fine. Did it. Did it. Did it. We'll be right back to share our freak out. Our macho of the week. Hey y'all, this is Jay, the hotline director here at Feminist Frequency. And right now we are in the midst of our spring campaign, raising funds to support the Games and Online Harassment Hotline. Do you know about the hotline? It's the best tool we've got for supporting people who play games or work in the games industry and who experience abuse, toxicity, or harassment. Through the hotline, we also offer programs like Respec, our accountability support group for people who have caused harm, and the Help Desk, our free consultation service for people in the games industry who want to bring a survivor-centered shift to their organization and create behavior change, repair, and healing. So help us keep offering these essential services for our community and work to transform games culture. Visit the donate page on our website to support the Games and Online Harassment Hotline today. Thank you. Now it's time to talk about the macho that's been thrilling us, moving us, upsetting us, or infuriating us this past week. Except, listen, chopping and screwing it for our season finale. Let's just have a little bit of time to download about Patrick Swayze, patron saint of the pod, uh, one of my my ancestors <laughs> spiritual guides <laughs> let's get into it all through watching these like 70s and 80s asshole dance guys i thought this is why patrick swayze is so singular because yep. by the time we get to 1987 and dirty dancing oh yeah he's a kind of a dick he's cocky <sighs> but it's because he's got a vulnerability that he's trying to protect <laughs> I'm already like I'm horny. I can't have this conversation. He's so perfect. Oh my god! I mean, for anyone who doesn't know, Patrick Swayze, his mom like was a dance teacher. He grew up dancing, and he was an athlete. He was a football player. He did he did martial arts. He's he had a football injury, and then he went and moved. He went and trained at the Joffrey and other ballet, like got formal ballet training. <sighs> I'm gonna cry. That's like so. He's so talented. It's disgusting. Have you seen his um, PBR commercial from like 1979? 
Is it the one where he's roller disco? No, that is the film, the film Skate Town USA. Another early Swayze <laughs> role. Uh, I saw a TikTok of that recently and I was gobsmacked, frankly. I, I mean, he is so good at everything he does. And being earnest mm-hmm. about it. The way, like, you know, he was doing televised dance performances with his wife, Lisa Naimi, like, Mm-hmm. Like years late, like into their lives, he did. He did Grease on Broadway. Later on, he did Chicago on Broadway. But like, he's. I would kill to see him as oh, Billy I Flynn. Know. By I the saw way. just some still. Good lord, that's amazing. There's gotta be video out there. Oh, incredible! The thing that's interesting about him in this episode is like, I mean, he was mostly thought of as an action star, right? Like an action mm-hmm. star who could dance. But I don't know, like. Because I'd say probably the bulk of his movies are like serious or action. And then a couple yeah. of them are dance roles. But those couple are like the most like Dirty Dancing, I think, has got to be his most beloved, yeah. remembered. Definitely. I wonder, I, I'm curious, this is maybe a bit of a tangent, but I'm wondering if at the time, like all of these movies that he's in are most known for besides Point Break or whatever, he seems like an actor who would maybe get a reputation as like a women's mm-hmm. actor. Do you know what I mean? Like somebody who's in movies for women or yeah. whatever. Um, but obviously I think that's not, that's a disservice. But well, this mean. is now in the eighties and nineties, this era of heartthrob that is like, mm. I feel like people, you could, you could fold Fabio into the same kind of mm. mold as like, when Patrick Swayze had like the feathered big man yeah. hair, like he was eye candy for women mm-hmm. and men. <laughs> but mm-hmm. he's so like, it's weird because like looking at it, it's hard to know like how much was he respected? Cause I think a lot of like guys who just like action movies love yeah. Patrick Swayze's action movies. Yeah. Roadhouse is beloved. Point break is beloved. But then Mm -hmm. with Dirty Dancing, like, he is one of the romantic leads of all time. And Ghost, which I watched recently for the first time. Yeah. Um, Yeah. I would have to say, so let's talk just for a second about Tu Wong Fu. Thanks for everything, Julie Newmar. And I kind of lump this into Swayze's dance roles because he's playing a drag queen who performs. So we see Mm -hmm. her dance and lip sync a couple of times um and this is a movie that like thoroughly refers to the characters as drag queens when they are living yes. as trans women in hmm. in as far as i understand when i'm watching it like or at least john leguizamo's character um for sure i don't yeah, yeah. i haven't seen it in a, a year or so yeah there's yeah. a scene where they get pulled over and swayze's character is like oh no they're going to see my driver's license and it has like my old name on it Mm. and i'm in you know full like wig makeup everything just driving around so uh but that's such like such an interesting movie to come out in 1995 um and have three like especially you know wesley snipes and patrick swayze are seen as these like extremely Uh masculine characters yeah john like was almost said he like like basically took all protein out of his diet before filming because he wanted (laughs) to have like really low muscle mass and look very feminine 
um, but that they just committed. I mean, like, it would have been so... If one decision went differently, I feel like it would have been a movie that made fun of these characters. Yeah, for sure. Well, there was this um, video that you shared with me like weeks ago, even before we were like going to talk about this, but it's some kind of, you know, actor's studio interview about this film. And the interviewer basically just says to Patrick Swayze, like, tell me about your character. Tell me about, you know, how you found her or whatever. And I think at the time came out, what, 95? Mm -hmm. Oh my God, prime time for being a fucking homophobe as a straight actor. You know what I mean? But the quote from this video that you shared was like, Patrick Swayze says, oh, I knew in rehearsal, I found it out pretty quickly that I had to go for a performance. Mm -hmm. I had to, you know, fully develop this woman and make her somebody who lives to make other people's lives better. She's a mother. She's a helper. She's a a giver. Like, the fact that he was so considered and so performance-based about something that can easily be temperature, and especially when, if played by the wrong, like, cishet actors, truly, truly, um, just that that consideration it truly made me yeah. emotional like watching that video i was like god this is beautiful um and then there were clips from wesley snipes and john Leguizamo, similarly just like so considerate and smart and craft oriented i was like damn it's amazing that this movie got made like that alchemy specifically is it's just incredible that it exists yeah and like i need to do a lot more reading about the director of this movie beban kidron who like has like Order of the British Empire and was like a documentarian oh, for wow. many years. Tu Wang Fu is like not cool. even on her like known for movies. <laughs> I don't wow. know. I was like, how did this happen? Um, cool. But if anyone hasn't seen this movie, like it is, it's so sincere. And I think that's the thing that like, yeah, it, it doesn't, you don't expect that. You expect it to be like, that's the Swayze yeah. thing. There's just an earnestness of it. Like, he commits. I was watching Ghost, and I didn't love it as a whole movie. Like, I was like, oh, this is bad. Like, it, I mean, there are some really inspired performances. I think the lead three, like, to me more, Patrick Swayze and Whoopi Goldberg are great. But, like, the movie is dumb. But he commits so yeah. hard to the stupidity of it in a way where it's like, I can't help but admire that he's going for a performance yeah. in, like, this kind of wacky-ass movie. Like, it's, it's I don't know. I, I love actors who yeah. care and he cares and he's so good at it. There's so much lore about Dirty Dancing and like that, you know, he and Jennifer Grey didn't necessarily get along on set. But also yeah. uh, when she was cast, like she touched his butt during the screen test in a way that just showed like a desire for the care for Patrick Swayze that yeah. other actresses hadn't like they had just gone in to be like, I'm a dancer. Yes, here I am. You know, yeah. and here we had a character an actress showing up saying like this is a character who wants this gorgeous man that she wouldn't typically be paired up with um yeah and that's one of those movies like like roman holiday that i watched when i was young and i had a lot of different life experiences you know or or lack of life experiences and the romance of it is very different looking back as an adult but it never is unbelievable. Like, even though you might watch it and think like, are Johnny and baby really going to stay together forever? It's like, well, (laughs) no, no. Yeah. (laughs) It doesn't matter. (laughs) It doesn't matter. It's about, Uh, it's about like, they are using dance to get to the next 
step of life. And like for her, it's about growing yeah. up. For him, it was about survival. And okay. they find each other in this like really vulnerable time. And it's it's honestly Ugh. like Dirty Dancing has got to be the movie I've watched the most of any movie. And mm. I think that's true for like generations of people who had TBS. Yeah, <laughs> for sure. Um, and, you know, it's a movie that like the central uh, yeah. inciting incident is is a back alley abortion. Um, yeah. Crazy. Yeah. He's just someone who I think was so good at using his body to like convey pleasure mm-hmm. and transcendence and like, I don't know, just enjoyment yeah. um, in so many different ways. Like Point Break, you have the like the ecstasy of surfing and adrenaline and jumping out of the plane, which he loved doing in yeah. his real life, which is crazy. In all of his dancing roles, you know, dancing as an expression of sexuality and romance like it's just he's so physical and so embodied in so many of his roles and we thank him (laughs) for it my god check out the links in the show notes to this disco commercial he did for paps blue ribbon in 79 um (laughs) and also the chippendales sketch he did on snl with chris farley which i was reminded of that sketch reading bob odenkirk's book and he has a (laughs) chapter just talking about like this horrible time watching his friend chris farley die uh over a long period yeah. of uh addiction struggle and how like this scene is definitely the the punchline of the whole scene is fat phobia mm-hmm. but like there's a chemistry in these like five minutes between chris farley <laughs> and patrick swayze as two guys auditioning for chippendales who both want it real bad and yeah. also were like i'd be so happy for you if it's you it's like so kind of lovely up until like mike myers delivers the final blow or whatever but yeah um well it's similarly like i i gotten a whole reading about the ghost production and whatever after seeing it but him and whoopi goldberg being like kind of besties like him really riding for her to be cast in that film like i think he was he seemed like someone who was loved by his fellow actors too which means a ton you know Thank you to Patrick Swayze. Thank you, Patrick. In all things. That has been our show for today. That has been our season of Feminist Frequency Radio presenting Machos Fully Loaded. Coming soon will be a bonus episode with Anita Sarkeesian. We're going to talk about Patrick Swayze. It's <laughs> like, Anita, we need to be on the air talking about Patrick Swayze and several of the yeah. other themes throughout the season that... Um, I was really eager to get like her responses as the episodes were coming out. So we'll get to have a, a bonus conversation there. Um, but yeah. And thank you, AC for, for joining oh. me on the dance floor. Of course. Thanks for having me. It was a delight to deconstruct uh, the season. Um, you can follow me on Instagram and letterboxd at AC Lamberty. I have that machos fully loaded list on letterboxd. If you want to, revisit anything we've talked about i'm on twitter at cat underscore ex underscore machina i'm on the supporting the wga picket lines if you show up and say hey also uh depending on when you're listening to this please follow feminist frequency on all of the social medias at femfreak and if you are a patreon subscriber stick around we have one more bonus for you this season we're going to talk about the macho content coming up in the future months that we are excited to consume 
If you like our show, help other people find it by subscribing, rating, and commenting on your favorite podcast app. Thank you so much for listening. Bye. Bye.